Thank you so much for uh, that worship moment. I tell you, do you ever just like, I don't know, I, I, maybe I felt what maybe some of you have felt, but uh, all of a sudden I just felt an agitation within me, or maybe an agitation with people, well, nobody specific, so relax, nobody here. Um, but I don't know what your week has been like. And then there's like agitation with, you know, going to church and then agitation with, you know, talking to God. And it's like, ah, uh, you know. And so let me just kind of just springboard after what Jason was presenting us with there is just, just allow this peace of God to come into your life right now. Just say no to the agitation, whatever the sources may be whether they're legitimate or, or illegitimate, whether they belong to be there or not, whether you're justified or not, just say no to any agitation. And just breathe into the, this moment, your heart, and allow the Spirit of God to be breathed into you. So Father, we just welcome you into this moment as you speak to us. We thank you. You know, we've been looking at This Is Us, discovering our story inside of the story of the early church in the book of Acts. And we're looking for us in these stories as we're reading through them and kind of getting an idea of what church is supposed to be like because there are a lot of ideas out there. And, you know, what do you got to have in order to have a church? You got to have a big screen. You got to have, um, you know, a bouncy castle. Do you have to have certain doctrine? What do you got to have in order to be a church? Or what do you got to be in order to be a Christian? Do you, can you drink? Can you not drink? Can you smoke? I mean, all these different things that have kind of collapsed on the American culture of, about what church is. So we've gone back to the book of Acts to discover us in the story of us as it happens in their lives. We're looking at the way they expected God. They really did seem like God was near to them. And they expected him. We're looking at what they believed. We're looking at how they treated one another and the people around them. That's a big deal. When you're looking for a reference point on how to treat people around you and how to treat one another, we're looking at how they presented God to other people, how they interacted with other cultures, how they interacted with other people. So we come to a part in the story that the church was growing but it's not without its adversity. God was beginning to move. God was doing some incredible things in the church. And there was some rising adversity. But interestingly, the adversity started coming from within. Now, can we just say that right off the bat? If you think church is going to be adversity-free from within, your expectation of church is unreal. If you think church is without its conflicts, or you're in a bad church because it has conflicts, your expectation is unreal. They're part of the things. As we see the conflicts in this, in this particular story, this is us. We're people who argue. We're people who fight. We are people who have sharp disagreements on things. So Paul and Barnabas were enjoying a lot of cool success reaching the non-Jewish Gentile community around the Mediterranean. They were, they were given the word of God, and God was doing miracles. He was doing incredible things, and people were were responding, and these new believers were just 
taking it all in and believing in God. So the story looks really good at this particular moment. Well, if you want to change how the story is going to look, just sprinkle in a little bit of church people into the crowd, and maybe the, the story begins to change. Let me read it to you. In Acts 15, 1, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem, kind of like the mothership, to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So I wanted to see right away, this is us, this is an example of us, is how do you handle conflict? It's not by going to another church. It's not by not coming back or leaving a relationship broken. They wanted to find unity in the middle of the conflicts and they had questions and they sought out spiritual answers for their spiritual questions. I mean, you can always go to work and find somebody that will agree with some nonsense idea that you have. But when you connect yourself in a community of believers, you'll always look for, especially in conflict, for some spiritual insight on how to resolve the conflict. Instead of giving somebody a peace of mind, you rather go and seek a peace of mind from maybe some spiritual leadership or from someone that may have some insight on how things should continue. So when they had come to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers, now believe, remember, these are believers. These are church folks. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up, and again, I just think it's really interesting that if this is the early church and that, it had people with different theological perspectives. These Pharisee guys had a different perspective. They were believers, but they had a different perspective on God. But yet they were still part of the church. We don't kick people out just because they different, have different perspectives. We don't just end fellowship because we have conflict or dissension. Or, I mean, I love what it says. I mean, why would Luke have to write this? He says, and Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Why not just say, and they argued, or they disagreed? But he wanted us to know that there was veracity, there was, there was angst, there was all that behind this. Why? Because this is us. This is part of who we are. So we shouldn't get blown out of the water that we have conflict or disagreement, sharp disagreement among us. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise these non-Jew Greeks, these new Christians, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, this is a big deal question. Is Moses and the law still the driving issue for Christianity? You may have asked the exact same question. I mean, hey, if you got a tattoo... Did you maybe ask somebody? Maybe not. You, you know, maybe you weren't in a frame of mind to actually ask anybody if you should have gotten that tattoo. But if you ever, th you know, is it okay for Christians to get tattoos? Because there's a, there's a verse back in Leviticus that talks about marking your body for the dead. You know, and it's like, does that apply for me today? That's a, 
I get that. I mean, I understand that how much of this applies to us. You may have asked a different question. Do we as Christians obey the Old Testament in order to be Christians? So do we got to do everything in the Old Testament that, that they did? So this is a real question. We can't make fun of the Pharisees for not being able to make the transition to this new idea. So the story continues. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, oh my goodness, debating. I don't want to go to a church where there's debating. Um, it's like, well, welcome to the, the first church. Welcome to where they don't have it all figured out, and the best thing they do in unity is debate the issues and seek spiritual counsel. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, he didn't break them up into categories, Pharisees and brothers. He said, brothers, it's like we're, we're still in the same family. Don't go anywhere. You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, therefore, and I love it, this is Peter telling everybody, this is us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the ne neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Why would you do this? We couldn't even get the, the law of Moses right, and we're Jewish. We couldn't get it right. Why would you, if you understand that they received the grace of God just like we have by faith, why do we want to make it difficult for them? Why do we want to lay this yoke on them? And Peter said, but we believe that we have, will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. I think it's amazing. Peter had to learn but this was still amazing. He had to learn this. He was in a he's part of what I would call the transitional generation. And some of us are part of the current transitional generation. When there's an old idea about something, and then you gotta convert your brain over to a new idea about something. I don't want you to underestimate the, the situation that the hearers of this message and this, this conflict that are a part of, this is a big deal conflict for a bunch of Jewish people to find out that a bunch of non-Jewish people are accepting Jesus Christ by the Lord, but they don't want the circumcision part. Who would? I mean, they don't want to be a part of it. They don't want to have all that. They, they want Jesus and just Jesus. And this is a real challenge to their cultural experience as Jewish people, as Jewish Christians, and what their expectation was. Like I said, I'm part of what's called the transitional generation. You say, well, from what to what? Let me give you an example, and I don't mean to be offensive in any of this. This is purely an example to show transitional. Um, when I was growing up, we would call people that were from Asia Orientals. That was, you know, that's what we, we when we grew up, it seemed right. Um, that's, so people are Oriental, then we would go to an oriental restaurant, and that was the word we used. Now back in 1950, 1960, 70, maybe 80, I don't know, maybe 
Asian folks didn't like it, but I didn't know about it because I didn't have a bunch of Asian folks around me. They weren't a part of my community. So I didn't have to make a transition. I was just surrounded by mostly predominantly white people and we, whatever white people called other people is what other people were. I didn't realize how insulting that is. But that's the way I was raised. Until some young people came along, particularly the ones on staff, and they used to tell me, you know, you can't say that anymore. And I'm like, who says I can't say anymore? And who says it's offensive? And when I asked most of them, they didn't technically know what was wrong with the word or the phrase oriental. So I did a little research on it because I don't want to be offensive on purpose. I discovered that it is a very Anglo-Saxon-centric description for a huge multi-ethnic people group that had names they wanted to use to describe themselves instead of the orientation of their nation compared to the most holy Anglo-Saxon. You know, when I read that, and I'm like, you know what? If I'm from Japan, and you're going to call me Oriental, I think I'm, which means, by the way, in the East. Okay, so, so Anglo-Saxons are in the center of the known world and universe, and everybody is either West or they're East, however we designate them. And you say, wow, you've really gotten off on a tangent here. But no, this isn't. It's because, because sometimes I slip up and, and I'll be like, yeah, hey, anybody guys want any oriental food? Let's go. And I'll be like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not the way we think anymore. And I mean it. But I'm in the transitional generation, meaning I got one foot in thinking this way, and I now have got to be taught to think this way and to make the transition. Now, the millennials in the crowd, you don't know any different. So it sounds like you guys got it all right. But you know, don't worry. You'll be in a transitional generation in about 25 years when somebody will be telling you, nah, we don't talk that way anymore about women or about so-and-so or whatever. We don't use that phraseology. But where I was standing was realizing I need to make a transition in perspective. But my culture had produced this kind of language and this kind of expectation. The crowd of Jews listening to Peter talk about these non-Jewish people are kind of like both feet here, but they're as being asked to slide one of their feet over to here. It's like, yeah, we're Jewish, but yeah, we also want to be welcoming to this group of people that we used to call heathens, pagans, Gentiles. They used to not be a part of us. So they had to be a part of it. This is the transitional generation wrestling with this difficult subject. And God was challenging them. And God is challenging us. Is that because some of us need to make a transition in the way that we think about other people. And this is what the people of God do. The this is us. What they're doing, they're being willing to rethink how they interact with Gentiles and how they classify them. Non-Jewish people that's a Gentile, I mean, so that's a whole, that's a buttload of people on the rest of the planet when you consider the non-Jewish people on the planet. But God's saying, I want you to think differently about them. And God is challenging us. How do we deal with people different than us? Because that's what defines us as a church, how we deal with differentness. Better yet, like the Pharisees were asserting, 
Do people have to adopt being like you to be loved by God and specifically to be loved by you? How much of you do they have to be like before you'll welcome them over to your house? How much of, of like what you think about Christianity do they have to adopt before you feel that they have adopted Christianity? You know, well, I really believe if he was a Christian, he would blah, 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 blah. I mean, have you ever said something like that? Well, I believe a real Christian would blah, 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 blah. How much do people have to adopt to, to being like us until they are loved by us? The story continues. So in the middle of all this, I want you to hear in Acts 15, and all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. All of a sudden, everybody got quiet when they started to hear what God was doing in these others, these different people, these non-Jewish people groups. They all got quiet and listened. I don't want you to ever underestimate the power of falling silent. Because sometimes it's the best thing you can do. Just shut up. And just let God work in other people's lives. And it says, and as they began to hear what God was doing, it was like everybody got quiet. It's like, you know what? Sometimes just getting quiet is the best option to do. We don't have to have an opinion about what God should be doing in her life or in his life or what they should be doing, that when the church will just be silent and allow God to work in other people's lives, things go best. Well, I think they, they blah, blah. Oh, I, I mean, it's just, I've been a part of it. I've had, I've had a gazillion opinions about about what people should do if they really love God. But in the middle of this conversation, the people fell silent when they heard what God was doing. Because all humans should be quiet when it comes to God doing the sacred work of grace in another human being's life. Wives, your husband doesn't need to hear it. Husbands, your wives don't need to be told. Parents, your kids don't need to be lectured. Sometimes just being silent and letting God speak and do his work is the best thing you can do. The Apostle James, who, by the way, if you're a little Bible scholar, um, he's actually the leader of the the church. We think it's Peter, uh, but James is actually the Supreme Court justice of the group of apostles. He's the guy that ends up making the final decision. This is what's called the First Council of Jerusalem taking place. So they're all together, all the apostles, and they have to come up with a ruling on what are we going to do with these non-Jews, these others who are just believing in Jesus and not getting circumcised. What do we do with these others? In Acts 15, 13, James stands up and he says, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree 
just as it's written. And I, this is really going to be a beautiful thing. When you give me, let me read it to you and then ex- explain it. He says, after this, quoting the book of Amos, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Let's not trouble what God's doing inside of their lives. Now, they end up agreeing that there are some things that the Greek Jews and the, the Gentile Christians should abstain from because of it, it was kind of an expression of the pagan worship of their culture. So they kind of gave him, hey, you know, you shouldn't be, you know, worshiping this way with the strangled animals and drinking blood of the animals and things like that and the sexual immorality. Like, kind of pull out of that because it was a confusion of, of, the, of worship and, and kind of allegiance of soul that they needed to come out of that pagan worship thing. But they all agreed that they don't have to be Jewish for the inclusion to grace. This is really big. But James used an ancient Jewish illustration and prophecy to illustrate how they or how we should be doing church. There's this thing called the Tabernacle of Moses, if you're not familiar with it. Okay, it's this, it's this tent that they carried around as a series of tents with a series of chambers that um, hold different objects in it. The Holy of Holies is kind of like the third chamber where you would go in, only the high priest would go in, and there the Ark of the Covenant was. But then there was like a three-foot wall of, of veil separating. Then there was the holy place that had another tent around it that blocked the view. Only the priest could go in there. Then we were in the outer courts, and the people could come into the outer courts, but there, there was a lot of sacrificing going on. You would present your doves or your whatever your sacrifice was, so there was a lot of killing and sacrificing. But the problem with this whole system um, was that it was divided into approach zones, meaning that you could go, if you were a Jewish person, you could go into the the public area, but um, if you were a woman, you could not go any further. If you were born illegitimate, you were not even allowed to enter into that zone. If you were of the priestly tribe, you were allowed to go into the holy place, but unless you were the high priest, you were not allowed to go into the holy of holies. So each zone, as it approached God, according to this tabernacle, became more and more restrictive, and fewer and fewer people were allowed to go in it. You had to become more and more Jewish to get in there, more and more male, more and more Levitical. You had to, I mean, all of a sudden, the, the, it narrows down to how close you can get to God. So most people, even though the Ark of the Covenant's there, never see it. Because they got to do all this ritual, all these sacrifices, getting all cleaned up, and then after all these these animals have been sacrificed for sins. Then these guys, these priests, approach God, and then this one singular priest on a particular day of the year gets to go in and see the Holy of Holies and goes into the presence of God. So James says, that's not what 
God wants to restore. That's not what Christianity is about. But he actually cites something very Jewish because he's talking to a Jewish crowd and trying to get them to understand. So he's using a Jewish example. He says, but in the last days, God is going to restore the tabernacle of David. Well, let's take a picture of that. That's the tabernacle of David. Now, the tabernacle of David, David had this. He had the Ark of the Covenant. He put a tent over it. And um, after it was inaugurated, there were no sacrifices performed at the tabernacle of David. There were no priests serving at the tabernacle of David. You know who was serving at the tabernacle of David? Singers, worshipers. 24 hours a day, worshipers would, would come to the tabernacle of David and they would just sing the praises of God. But the interesting thing about it is that the tent was peeled back so everybody could come, not just to the, the tent of the people of God, not just to the outer chamber, not just to the holy place, but everybody got high priest view of the very presence and the, and the tabernacle of God. David just opened this thing up and it's like, Hey, you're a woman? Come on, you want to see the tabernacle? Hey, yeah, you don't know who your dad is? Cool. You want to see the tabernacle? Hey, you Jewish? No, you're not Jewish? You're not circumcised? Hey, okay, you want to come see the tabernacle? You want to come see the Ark of the Covenant? And what we're being told is that James says that what is about this church thing, what God wants the church to be, is not a restoration of a legalistic process and approach zones that only certain people can go as long as they don't have a problem with alcohol, as long as they don't struggle with porn, as long as they're not on their third marriage, not as long as, you know, and he's like, that's not what God wants to restore. He wants to restore the open tent one. He wants the one with the tent pulled back. He wants the church to be an open tent. This is us is that we are people to not lay burdens on the backs of other people that we ourselves couldn't bear, and our job is to open the tent wide so that they can see the presence and the glory of God in our church and in our lives. Yeah, but what are the requirements? Can they be gay? You know, well, I really don't see anything stopping a gay person coming up here and, and seeking the presence of God. It's not an affirmation of all things right and wrong, but God decides to start the other way around. Let's start with the presence of God, and then let's begin to live Christ-like. Let's first, you know, getting them to do rules so they can finally make their way into the, the presence of God, that ain't working. That gets real small, 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 small. So we're going to start it the other way. We're going to turn the funnel around. We're going to give them a dose of the presence of God. And then we're going to, after they've encountered the grace, the love, and the power of God in their lives, we're going to say, okay, now walk like Christ would walk. But don't lay anything else on them other than this. This is what the church, this is us. It's absolutely a beautiful picture. Instead of a sacrifice of, of the blood and the, of the goats and the rams and all that, 
This is when David writes the Psalms. When David writes all the Psalms about coming into his presence with thanksgiving in your heart and offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving, the sacrifice of a contrite heart, he's talking about this tent. This is what he's talking, that's what you do in front of that. You, you worship, you bring your broken heart, you bring your messed up life. And you get to come into the presence of God. You're a woman, yeah, you're welcome to. You're, you're, not, you're not Jewish, you're welcome to. You're not a Levite, it doesn't matter. Struggling with porn, come on. You know, on your third marriage, no problem, no problem. I mean, it's just, it's almost silly, it's so beautiful. I mean, because that's what the tent is. God just, you say, well, that's, that's really interesting. Why would that be spoken of that way? In John chapter one, there's a really peculiar turn of scripture where um, that God spoke in olden times through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through the son, who is the very revelation of God. What is Jesus? He's, he's flesh and he is God. He is man and he's God. What is that? A tent that's wide open. It says in John that God, that Jesus has revealed him. This is us. We're supposed to be revealing the love of God, not checking everybody at the door to find out whether or not they live up to the standards of belonging to the people of God. Let me just say, morality and the principles of the law matter. But they are not the things any longer that define our approachability to the throne. And you say, well, who would have thought that? Well, I bet you, do you, do you know you can approach the throne of God even though you're not perfect? I mean, do you really believe that? I mean, Jason said it during prayer. He's saying it like he's really here. Or sing it like you're singing it right to him. Well, you know, I'm here because I, I'm afraid of God. I don't want him to hurt me. I'm afraid of, I'm here because, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a worthless sinner. You know, this is Hebrews saying, boldly approach the, gro- the throne of God in time of need and mercy. It's like, come on, come into the living room. Come right, just get, come right into the living room. Don't worry about anything. Don't wipe your feet off. Don't clean yourself up. Don't take your jacket off. Just come right into the living room. Do you know that you can approach God that boldly? Because God wants you to know that. You can. Poor Catholics. They came up with this thing called purgatory. It's all made up. And I'm not being ugly. I was born and raised Catholic. And once Catholic, I was a Catholic. Kind of like those folks. And, but they came up with this thing called purgatory. You know why they came up with it? It was because they had a problem with what if a human being dies before having confession and dies with a sin in their life? Huh. Well, that sin hasn't been confessed. Huh. How can they go up and see the beautiful presence of God if they have sin in life? I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll invent an antechamber that they get shoved in where they get that sin burned off of them purgatory or purging gatory, <laughs> okay? And then once we get them cleaned up, then they can go to God. That's not, the, that's not the tabernacle of David. Guess what happens when you die, even if you have a sin in your life? 
You know, you immediately go to the presence of God. You go right to the tabernacle of David. You go right to the Ark of the Covenant. You go right to the one who was tent and, and Ark at the same time. You go right to Christ. No shame, no guilt, just welcomed into the presence of God. But we need to realize, I don't care what you did last night. I don't care what you did wrong. God doesn't want you to drag that thing around for three days until you feel really contrite and bad about it. You know what he wants you to do? He wants you to get right, get right up, go talk to him about it, it's all done. Well, then we made up another thing as Catholics. We can't have a daddy easy. And I, I didn't put son even in my notes, but I now realize how I got all messed up. Is that, no, we gotta have you first do acts of contrition. Uh, you really got to prove you're sorry before we'll give you the Eucharist. Because we can't have a dirty human being touching the Eucharist, so you got to do acts of contrition. Three Hail Marys and Our Father and maybe rake somebody's yard. And then once you've shown that you're, you know, I'm not making this stuff up, okay? I'm a good Roman Catholic from the Boston area. We're like the Catholics of Catholics, okay? Italian, the whole thing. It sounds right, doesn't it? I mean, like you should have to work in to get in the presence of God, that you should have to like pay for what you did wrong. I mean, that's what these folks were like. No, they're gonna have to get circumcised at least. And James is like, no, God's not restoring that tabernacle. That tabernacle didn't work for us, and God knows it. So he wants us to restore the tabernacle where the church becomes the revelation of God as a tent wide open. Grace invites inclusion. And then living like Christ in an inclusive, inclusive community. Christianity is a new multi-ethnic reality of the Jesus movement. It's like there is no ethnicity to Christianity. There's no only guys get to be Christian. Only gals get to be Christian. I mean, it's, it's wide open. The tent is wide open. Come unto me, all you are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What is that? It's the voice coming out of the tent. It is the tent, the incarnate Christ, opening up the message of the cross and, and the Ark of the Covenant, saying, any one of you who are heavy hearted, come on, visit the tent of God. Equality before God, God, regardless of ethnicity, gender, or nationality. You're like, dude, you're sailing really close here. I would rather sail real close to the ark of God than to stand and make people stand afar because they don't know who they are. Because after all, isn't it at the presence of God you finally figure out who you are? You're only guessing up until that point. This is us, and the big challenge for me is, is this me, this New Testament idea? Am I willing to be part of a transitional generation from an old way of thinking about what, what a Christian can be and what they, they are and who can be one, and God's calling me to be a transitional person into a, a thinking about this the way that God thinks about this? So let me ask you some hard questions. Do you allow things in other people's lives to affect whether or not they can approach you? 
I mean, have, do you, is there some stuff in other people's lives that you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't want to talk to them, yeah. No, he's such a, you know, whatever. I mean, do you, do you have stuff that you see in other people's lives and you say, I am unapproachable to them because I've decided they, they're doing that in their lives, they can't approach me. Well, that's not what This Is Us is all about. Is your life an open tent with the grace of God? Or do people have to be like you to get in? You know, do they have to be like you? But I think the question God wants everybody to answer for themselves, do you know you can approach God without being perfect? With struggling with whatever sin you may be struggling with? Did you know that you don't have to get it all fixed to make God a bunch of promises? I never promised God anything. I don't promise him anything. He makes the scripture about don't make a vow. Because, well, God, you know, if you'll forgive me for, for um, you know, uh, betting on the ponies, um, I, I promise I will never bet on the ponies again. Uh, and God's like, stop it. I didn't ask you to promise you'd never bet on the ponies again. Remember the son in the prodigal son story? He says, ah, I'll go back to my father, and I will say to my father, make me as one of your servants, for I am unworthy to be in your house, and just treat me as one of your servants. See, he thinks he has to re-erect the tabernacle of Moses, and the father says, nope, you came home, here's your ring, here's your coat, with kids the fatted calf, guess what? The tent's wide open, and the presence of God is here for you. And I'll tell you what, you get that into your life, you will never live with shame again because shame cannot dwell in the presence of God. It gets chased away. You may say to me, Paul, how can you be so honest about your life in public? You're you're such a doofus. It's like because I stand in front of something greater than you. I stand in front of an open tent and, and I behold God in his presence, in his peace, in his love, in his forgiveness, in his mercy. Well, you, is that because you'll never do that again? No, I'll, I'll probably do that again. The things I should do, I don't do, Paul said. The things I shouldn't do, I intend to do those things. Oh, wretched man that I am, should I go back and build the tabernacle of Moses? No, I shall not. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I will erect the tabernacle of David. I will approach the person of God in Christ. The tent and the glory of God revealed. Could you imagine if we could all do this? Who wouldn't want to come to this church? You know, we wouldn't ask this, people ask us that question, hey, you know, I'm I'm gay. Are we welcome at your church? We should start chuckling. It's like, Man, I am sorry you had to even ask that question. Because, and you sure? Yeah, because they let me in. And I've been divorced in a cocaine addiction. And I mean, and I was once lost and now I'm found. Where'd they find you? In front of this open tent, beholding the glory of God in Christ Jesus. So as we enter into this closing moment, let me invite you. We have prayer partners that will be scattered around if you're living with shame and you don't feel, and here's how it will manifest itself. One, you don't feel forgiven. Maybe you're not that specific. 
maybe you feel like God's after you or God's going to punish you. Or maybe you feel like you're not even that looking at that technically. You're beginning to add up bad events like a broken dishwasher, a flat tire at car at work, I mean at, on your car, and then maybe, you know, you got called down by your boss and passed over. And you think all these are adding up because they say something about you before God. If that's the case, you probably got shame. And the best way to get, at, get rid of shame is enter into the presence of God, is to approach God. God's not asking you to make a promise. He wants you to approach him. And he's approachable. Uh, do I have to do No, 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 no. Do I have to understand it all? Nope, nope, nope. Do I got a vow? Nope, nope, nope. Just approach God. This is us. This is what God wants us to be. So let me invite you. Our prayer ministers have been specifically selected here at Crosstown. You know why? They've been selected because they're incredibly approachable. Because they have approached the throne of God for you. So we invite you. You say, I don't think I can share with anything. You don't have to share anything with them. Just go up to them and let them radiate the open tent over your life. Father, as we enter into this special, sweet moment, Lord God, we, your people, open our hearts and our lives. We open ourselves for the glory of God to be revealed in and through us. God, I pray that you would allow each and every one of us to come to the awareness that you want us to approach you, that we can boldly and confidently, with confidence, in the time of need, in the time of failure, a time of compromise, a time of unworthiness, and a time of shame, that in all times that we can boldly approach your throne of grace. This is us. So Father, we enter into this moment. We enter and approach the tent of God. Your presence is here through your Holy Spirit. Let me invite you, whether in your seat, we're almost done, it'll be done in a few minutes. But if you'll just, for one or two minutes, just posture your soul and your mind before God, before your Heavenly Father. You will be amazed at the transformation that will occur. We invite you into this.